Uh, we can't get away from it, can we? Um, <laughs> whether you're highbrow or lowbrow, whether you're kind of uh, classical culture or whether you're pop culture, uh, if we look at uh, something like Romeo and Juliet or if we look at EastEnders, you know, I tried to find us as kind of two distant points on the spectrum as I could possibly imagine. Uh, and, uh, you know, Romeo and Juliet, um, anybody read it? Okay, there's a few people have admit, admitted to it. Uh, that's great. And it, I've watched the film. <laughs> that's as close as, a, what a brilliant story. But doesn't it always, so many of these things, rely on one of the issues that we face in our human experience? That of broken relationships. Uh, anger towards one and another. You know the fact that on, on, on one side you have the Montagues, on the other side you have the Capulets. Is that right? Yeah? Yeah, I got another nod. Shakespeare here. Not very often in escape. Uh, fallen out. Broken relationships. Striving to kind of uh, come together and yet so angry. And if we come right the way through to... Stories have just relied on it down through the years. What I love about the Bible is that when we turn to it, we see that it doesn't sort of deal with highfalutin issues which are outside of our real experience. In one sense, the Bible is beyond our comprehension. It will always provide depths of truth that we can never fathom. It's really important that we understand that. You will at times, as you're looking at the Bible, you will at times reach points where you say, I just can't, I can't understand that. That's a good thing. Imagine if God was completely understandable to us. <laughs> if he was completely transparent, if there was never a further depth to which we could get to. And yet at the same time, God deals with real, down-to-earth, issues through his word real life so we've got that incredible depth which we can never fathom and at the same time it's just real life going on and we're coming to this section here which Paul is writing to a church in Philippi and he's saying let's deal with just a real down-to-earth issue uh, people are falling out he's writing to a church which is fairly recently formed uh, which is um, formed by the intervention and establishment of one of the greatest preachers that the, the Christian church have, has ever known, the Apostle Paul. So we're not talking about a church which is second rate in terms of its foundation. We're talking about a church which is right up there with the very best of establishments, and yet we find within a relatively short time, real human nature has come to the fore in the church. People have fallen out. It's just falling out in the church. Uh, we're going to put the three verses up that we're going to be looking at this afternoon. We can see Euodia and Syntyche have fallen out. Let me just say this to you. If you've been coming along maybe for a short time, uh, and you're looking at this at, at church and you're thinking, beginning to come to terms with this Christian message, beginning to come to terms with what the Bible says, and then placing expectations 
on, on ordinary people, uh, I, I, I want to give you the heads up now. You will be disappointed. You will find that in every church, in every situation where Christians gather together, it's not as though by becoming a Christian we suddenly change so that none of this stuff goes on. It does. And it can be so disillusioning if you've recently uh, come to faith in Jesus, you've become part of the church, and then you suddenly find yourself uh, in the middle of people not getting on. <laughs> hey, it's here. It's here in the Bible. Now, uh, probably something like uh, 34, 30, 40 years after Jesus. It always has been and always will be the case that the reality of the problem of our condition does not stop at the doors of the church, but pervades the reality of our gathering together. That's, that's just the heads-up reality. Does that mean, therefore, that we just sit back and say, hey, that's fine, that, that's just the way I am, or do we seek to address it? Well, Paul is saying here to this church, uh, we're going we're to address this issue. Let's have a look, we're going to briefly look at the flow of how he says uh, to address this. So we're going to look at the flow of these three, verse, three verses. We're going to say, ask the question, well, how, is this how does this reconciliation work? And then finally, we're going to ask, why does this kind of reconciliation work? Okay, so the flow, how, and why. First question is this, how does it work? First thing, in verse 1, Paul expresses uh, an, an astounding love for this church. They've been behind him. Uh, Paul is now, he's left, he's on a missionary journey, or he's on a number of missionary, missionary journeys. He's found himself in, in a Roman prison. He's been arrested, uh, and he's continuing to receive support and encouragement in, in all of his endeavours from this church uh, Philippi, and he expresses to them, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Therefore my brothers. The word there in the Greek is adelphoi. There's a huge amount of debate about this. What does it actually mean? Is he only talking to the men? Uh, there are some who would say, well, Adelphoi is, is def definitely masculine. My conviction, which is we're going to come to in a few minutes, is, is it's a word which is used as a general kind of uh, uh, family relationship, brotherly, sisterly, sibling type kind of relationship. It's actually talking. You could, you could translate that verse quite reasonably. Brothers and sisters. He's writing to the whole of the church. And he's saying, look, brothers and sisters, this is not the kind of, it's us trying to handle a, a language in the Greek where, in which it was originally written and translating it into English in our best way and trying to find words. Now, strictly speaking, it's, it's one word, Adelphoi. But in terms of the flow, my conviction is it's saying, brothers and sisters, this is how I consider you. I consider you uh, with deep love. Well, they're falling out. Yeah, but I still love you. I I'm concerned for you. I long for you. Uh, isn't it interesting? While he's stuck there in a Roman prison, 
His mind is for the church. We see that he writes to many other churches and other letters, and it's, it's just so interesting to see that again and again and again, no matter what situation is, his mind is for the churches that he's been involved with. His mind is not about himself. His mind is about them in their situation. Just think about that for a minute. I'm concerned about you because there's a couple of you falling out. I'm thinking about you. Just put it in perspective. A little bit of a fallout compared to a Roman prison. Which is the biggest? Which is the biggest issue? Well, actually, for Paul, the biggest issue is the issues in the church. Uh, because his concern is about them. His concern is for them to be growing, to be developing, to be nurturing. He's actually saying, you know, you need to understand how much of an issue it is when relationships are breaking down. You need to understand that. In, in the context of me being in a prison, my priority is thinking about you in the fact that you are striving together. On the basis of that, we have to ask ourselves a question, are we that concerned? Are we that concerned about relationship strife, about the issues that we face? Are we so bothered that we look at it and we think, this is not right? Or are the issues of life bigger in our minds than the issues that we face? What Paul is encouraging us to say is, look, you need to get your priorities right. The flow of the New Testament is consistently, again and again, relationship, love each other, encourage each other, be together, work at this relationship. That's the flow. I, I just don't think that we have that as a priority in our minds. And this is encouraging us to say, get that as your priority. I, I am longing for you because you are my treasure, my crown. We've looked at this a few weeks ago. He's saying, look, I consider on a day when I stand before Jesus and he's going to judge me on what I've done in life. What I've done in life as a minister of the gospel. I'm going to be able to look to you, which he has called whom he has called, and say, look, there's my treasure. There's my crown. There's my joy. Can I ask you, if you, if you, if you want to pray for your pastor, pray that that kind of heart might grow in this dark heart in here. That I might grow. That I might be able to say, you know, you are my treasure. Not because it elevates me, but because it elevates Jesus. That's where he is when he's stuck in a Roman jail. There's his priority. So there's the, the kind of foundation. And then he goes on and he says, uh, in, this, in this expression of love to you, I am now going to call on you. To stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. 
You who I love, stand firm in Jesus. I can't ask you to do anything more than that. Now we might think, well, that's fine. I'm I'm sure, of course, he's going to say that, isn't he? Do we understand what a radical shift has to take place for us to stand firm in Jesus rather than standing firm in ourselves? It has to be dramatic. Our self-dependency, our self-kind uh, of confidence, our inward focused, continuously looking at me, I am the priority, I am the definer of truth, I am the one who decides what is right and what is wrong. That is our issue. And he says, stop it. Stop standing firm in you. Start standing firm in Jesus. There has to be a Copernican revolution. There has to be such a shift in our thinking to start thinking in that way rather than depending on ourselves. Frank Sinatra said it. He kind of captured in that song exactly how we tend to think. He sang this, my way. For what is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has naught. That's the mindset, isn't it? If I haven't got me, I've got nothing. To say the things he truly feels, that is, if you like, in the mind of Sinatra, in the mind of the generation that we live in and the generation that that every generation has lived in throughout time, it has been about this. It has been about my ability to say the things that I truly feel. It's all about me. It's all about me being able to express, I'm the center. To say the things he truly feels, and not the words of one who kneels. I've I've been, as you know, I do tend to look at lyrics uh, as pictures. I think those lyrics are some of the most terrifying lyrics that have ever been penned. The idea that the true identity of a human being is being able to say what I really think and not kneel before God. Do you see how big a shift needs to take place for me to stand firm in the Lord rather than standing firm in me? It's massive. It's just a colossal shift and thinking that needs to take place. Marcus Aurelius, at the other end of the spectrum, Roman emperor, said this, Look within. Within is the fountain of good, and it will ever bubble up if thou wilt ever ever dig. Look inside, there's where the good is. Do you know what? It's not true, is it? It might sound great, but the reality is that when we really dig, okay, if we take, you know, if we take a kind of a, a, a spade from a kid's sandcastle set and dig into our hearts, you know, scrape the surface, we can find some good. You know, it might look good if we scrape. If we take a great big JCB and dig really deep, 
It's not so pleasant. Here's the reality. Here's the reality. What is good doesn't well up from inside. It's not the case. He says, goes on to say, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What does it look like when we stand firm in ourselves and don't stand firm in the Lord? That's the kind of contrast that he's making here, isn't it? He's saying stand firm in the Lord. What's happening with these two women? They're not standing firm in the Lord, quite simply. They're standing firm in themselves. You know and I know that that's how it works. As soon as we take our position, as soon as we hit our entrenched stance on a particular issue, we are immovable uh, and the distance between two people cannot be bridged. We are in our position. They're not standing firm in the Lord. They're standing firm in each other's individual position. Not, not in each other. They're standing firm in their own individual position. Uh, and he's saying in contrast, now imagine, uh, it never ceases to hit me. Euodia and Syntyche, two women who we don't know the surname of, but the whole of the church in Philippi will have known the surname of, uh, and the whole of the church around the New Testament time as this letter got passed down would have known that in the church at Philippi that there are two women who've fallen out. Uh, and for the past 2,000 years, there are two women who've fallen out. <laughs> what a tragedy. You know, it's easy to kind of step back and criticize, isn't it? Saying, oh, those you odious syntyche, you know, they've just fallen out. <sighs> when you're right in the middle of it, it seems so real. It seems such a priority. But when you step back, when time allows you the vision to put it into perspective, you realize, do you know what? It just wasn't that big a deal in reality. It, allow time to, to allow us to distance. I, we don't even know what the issue was. But what we do know now is that in contrast, in comparison to this majestic picture of the gospel of Jesus... There's these two women who've fallen out over an issue. Now, for me, this is one of the one of the driving reasons where I would say, firstly, that Paul is being remarkably countercultural here. He's actually saying, Do you know what? It matters that two of the women of the church have fallen out. In the ancient world, that's surprising. It's surprising that, uh, that it mattered. In, in such a male-dominated society, he's willing to say, do you know why it does matter? This is the second, the other reason why I would say that uh, Adelphoi, which we read in the first verse, is actually talking about men and women. You know, why else would he say, I, I'm going to write to you, brothers, and then address an issue of two women who've fallen out? Well, actually, he's addressing brothers and sisters. You're all in it together. And he makes the point that you're all in it together because his next phrase is, I want you to agree in the Lord and my true companion, whoever that might be. I also ask my true companion, help these women. 
they've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow uh, workers whose names are in the book of life. I want you to help them. That places a responsibility on all of us when there is a fallout, when there is a disagreement. Reconciliation is all of our responsibility. I want to point to all of you, he says, basically, in the church. You know, you've taken your eyes off the priority. You you, You were working so hard. You were working side by side with me. Uh, and now you've just kind of forgotten it, it would seem. You, you now, you've now drifted. We've been relatively, uh, a relatively short time here, haven't we? Comparatively speaking. I'll tell you now, and you probably know better than me, it's inevitable that there will be some of us who've drifted from the focus uh, and, you know, we're now standing in our issue and somebody else is standing on their perspective over here and there the twain shall meet. That, that is, that's where we're going to be because there's the reality of our hearts. And the Bible says to us here, you will never reconcile that while you carry on standing and I carry on standing in my set position. So how? How does this reconciliation work? By standing firm in the Lord. By actually letting go. By saying, I am no longer the king of my heart. I will let go. And you know what? It's an amazing thing when two people let go together. And say, I'm I'm not going to be focused on my entrenched position anymore. I'm going to be focused on being in the Lord. When two people do that, remarkable things happen. Incredible things happen when two people say, I'm letting go and Christ is going to be center. How can that work? How is it that we can do that? Why does Jesus become a a capability for us to do that? The best way I'm trying to illustrate this, it's a football illustration and um, I suppose I could give, um, I could try and give you a uh, some other kind of an illustration as well. You imagine two guys on a football pitch, and, and you know they're kind of just falling out, just because you didn't do that and he didn't do that, and then uh, on walks Lionel Messi. Those of you who don't know, Messi is one of the greatest footballers, in my view, which isn't particularly important, but. In my view, one of the greatest footballers of all time. And he walks onto the pitch. These two guys falling out. Uh, and you've, suddenly you've got this situation where two people who, who were so strong in their position, when Messi walks onto the pitch, who is so far and away and far and above anything that they could ever achieve themselves steps on, their positions become kind of irrelevant, don't they? Just compared to him walking onto the pitch, where are they? Now what happens when somebody walks onto the pitch of our situation who is in wisdom, 
in goodness, in his walk, in his faithfulness, in his honesty, in his integrity, in his righteousness, in his perfection, who steps in and is supremely greater than every single one of us. It makes where we stand so determined pale into insignificance compared to him. That's why Jesus makes the difference. That's how it works. Paul is saying this, look, as long as you stand in your self-confidence, self-righteousness, you're going to be in trouble. But if you stand, if you both stand in him, which means that I suddenly become profoundly aware that all of my self-confidence is a little bit shaky. I might not quite be right in all of the ways that I think I am right. Imagine if two people start to, to, to relate in that way. I, I might not be quite so right. Let's talk about it. You know, the, I know it's a bit kitsch, but what would Jesus say or do in this situation? How would his response be? How would his righteousness and integrity shape our decision and our, our issue at this point in time? How would that work? How would he do it? And suddenly we find ourselves standing in his righteousness, standing in the Lord, no longer standing in our self-determination, which quite honestly is wrecked in the light of his perfection. That's the impact that a real deep awareness of the pervasive power of Jesus impacts every aspect of our life. Do we live like that? Do we live thinking or do we kind of have that mindset which is, you know, my Christian thoughts are about Sundays. Probably from about half past four to about six o'clock. That's when I get Christian thoughts. And then I remember some of those thoughts, but they don't wash down to impact my day-to-day -day real life. We don't know what they've fallen out over here. They might have fallen out over a, a recipe or a, a fallout between their children. Anything. But what they've not done is they've not allowed the thinking of Jesus to wash down to the real nitty-gritty of life. How does this change me now in the things that I am facing now? Imagine. Imagine if we were really able to do that. And is this just all self-help to get it right? I want to ask now, why does this really, why does this work? Because Jesus, the Son of the living God, came into this world to reconcile us to his Father. 
There can't be a greater falling out. Euodia and Syntyche, they've fallen out. But it's nothing compared to the fallout that exists between us and God. Now what happens for that to be resolved? It costs. You know, Euodia and Syntyche, somebody's got to give. Somebody is, somebody's right. Somebody's wrong. And the one who has to back down because they were right... But for the sake of relationship, it's going to cost them, isn't it? And it cost God for us to be reconciled to him. It cost him. It cost him more than we could ever imagine. For us to be reconciled with a God who we've fallen out with because we have rebelled against him, it cost for him to be broken in relationship with his son so that the established relationship could be made for us. It's so that God can say, I will break that relationship to make that relationship. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said as he died on a cross. Why have you forsaken me? He shouts. And we could answer the reason that he has forsaken you is so that we might be reconciled. There's a huge issue going on at the moment because people look at the cross and they think that's, that's just horrible, the idea that God could... God could um, well, somebody's used the phrase, it's like cosmic child abuse. That God could possibly destroy his son so that we might find life. That's just horrible. Do you know what? The cross can't work without that. Why? Isn't the cross just a good way of showing how much God loves us by dying for us? That doesn't work. Imagine this, you stood at a, a railway crossing, there's a train coming, you're with a friend, uh, and, and the train is on its way, and the friend turns to you and says, do you know what, I just want to say, I love you. And let me show how much I love you, and just as the train is about to pass, he dives out in front of the train and gets splatted. How much did he love you as you're standing watching him splash all over the road alongside you? What was that all about? How does that show how much you love me? It doesn't, does it? What if the train is on its way and the friend shouts... I'm going to show you how much I love you as they leap across the path of the train to push you out of the way and they get splattered. It has to work that way. That's what the cross says. Jesus shouts, I love you as he dies. 
so that we might live. That is the most astounding and incredible reconciliation that this world could ever see. And Jesus says, quite simply, now on the basis of that reconciliation, you be reconciled by being in Jesus. Is it all about just the here and now? Or is there something better? I, get, I, I have to admit, I get quite choked when I see success in some way. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the success is. I'm really stupidly soft in some ways. You know, somebody wins something. Lewis Hamilton won the Chinese Grand Prix. And if you recorded it, that's the spoiler alert, too late. Um, Lewis Hamilton won the Chinese Grand Prix and the flag goes up. And I'm kind of feeling myself choked as the flag goes up. And it's, you know, success and Lewis Hamilton's getting a bit emotional. I tell you, if I'm emotional at that, a bit later on in the London Marathon, there's a guy running down the final 400 metres towards the finishing line, running with two prosthetic limbs, sprinting to the finish line, with success on his face. I am a sucker for human success. Why? Because it gives me a little taste of what it's going to be like when humanity is really successful again. When it's all resolved. I get choked when two people are reconciled. Truly. You know that moment when the barriers go down and you see... Occasionally you see it. They might stand up and hug each other. And it's all gone. And it's reconciled. It's a little taste of what it's going to be like when we see Jesus. And because we are reconciled with him, we are reconciled with each other. And you know what happens at that point? God will say again about humanity, see, it is very good. It is very good. It's like, it's resolved. It's good again. It's, imagine that. That's where we're headed. And 10 trillion years of eternity should put in, into perspective little fallouts now. Get into the cross. Get into living shaped by Jesus. And be reconciled by standing firm in him.